together at what unity is, uh, why it matters, and what it takes to have unity. So let's start with what is unity? Well, the word unity, as you might guess, comes from the word from a Latin word that means one. So a definition I found, there's many definitions of every word you can think of, but a definition I found of unity is having the same purpose, the same direction, or the same mission, or the state of being united or joined as a whole, or the state or property of being one. Some examples. You and your family are one. The members of the Detroit Lions are one team. Seems like they actually are one team. How about that? Uh, as members of Meadowbrook, we are one. Also, as Christians, not just here, but around the world, we are one. So that's unity in a very small nutshell. What about biblical unity? Biblical unity is simply unity based on who we are in Christ. That's the difference between biblical unity and any other kind of unity. It's in Christ. It's who we belong to. It's who we serve. Now, some things about this idea of unity. Um, being in unity doesn't mean that we have the same opinions. It doesn't mean we have the same abilities or skills or gifts. Just the opposite, actually. Uh, it is not necessarily looking at things the same way or having common interests, even. Unity is what we strive for as the church. And we're going to focus more on that idea of striving as we go. Now, a question you may be having here, because the world is full of conflict, and unity and conflict don't exactly sound like related terms, but they are. Is it possible, you might be asking, to have unity, to be in unity, but still have conflict? Consider the example of marriage. Conflict often arises in a marriage relationship. Right, Linda? Yeah. Uh, and why do we resolve the conflict? Well, it's because we work through it. Because we are united. We have a commitment that goes beyond the conflict. So looking at unity, now we want to look at what does unity look like? What should it appear to be? So for starters, we need to look no farther than Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are in perfect unity. Now, I'm not talking today about the church being in perfect unity because we're not there. We probably will not be uh, while we're still breathing. But God and His Son and the Spirit are one. They are in perfect unity. Matthew 28, 19 talks about being baptized in whose name? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One. 
In the book of John, we see Jesus confirms this unity with his Father several times. John 5, Jesus talks about that I only do what I see my Father doing. And in John 8, he says, I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. In John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, as for unity in the church, one place to look at is Philippians uh, 2, verse 2. In that verse, Paul gives us a description of what unity looks like as well as how to pursue it. He says that we are to be like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and purpose. So these are evidences of our unity. Consider for a moment that you and I are here in this time, in this place, for a reason. We have the same goal in mind. We're committed to giving ourselves to that goal or that mission in spite of our differences, regardless of the cost, regardless of the sacrifice that's required. To boil it down, the unity of the body of Christ supersedes my personal desires and priorities. So that's a pretty quick look at what unity is and what it looks like. So now let's go to another question, and that is why does it matter? What's so important about unity? Several things, as it turns out. Uh, Unity brings honor to God's name. And we could stop right there and say, well, that's the reason, the best reason to have unity, because it honors God. Romans 15, verse 6 says that as we receive the spirit of unity, it's describing an action that we should take. With one heart and mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God made us in his image to reflect his image. And that brings glory to God. So that's a very good reason for unity, to honor God. Also, unity promotes peace and harmony. Psalm 133 says in verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. And who among us wouldn't like more peace and harmony? whether it's here or there. Another really good reason is unity is what Jesus prayed for. He prayed for the unity of all who would believe in him. Now, I've got a scripture passage here that's not going to be up on the screen, but I'm turning to John 17. And if you'd like to turn there with me. And if your version is a little different than mine, Don't let it bother you. I'm doing old school NIV. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 20. This is, these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus' prayer, in part. He says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples that were there. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed for unity, and in his prayer, he gave the reasons we just read. In verse 21, he said, he asked that all believers would be in the Father and the Son for this reason, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And in verse 23, then, he actually play, prays for complete unity, so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, followers, as you have loved me. So what this tells us is that when we are united in Christ, the world sees two things. One, Jesus was sent by the Father. And two, Jesus loves his church. The world is watching, my friends. If the body of Christ doesn't consistently display unity and love for each other, why would anyone want to be a part of it? That's a question we all need to make sure we think about. Why else does unity matter? Um, without unity, the body cannot function as God intends for his people. And the mission of the church cannot be accomplished. As part of his body, we each have a particular job to do and a place to belong. When any individual member is not fulfilling his or her purpose in the body, the whole body suffers. All the members are united, and because of that unity, when one acts in a selfish manner, as if he or she is not part of the body, the whole body suffers. Here's the interesting contrast. Regardless of his actions, that individual member is still in unity with all the others in the body. They have what I would call the I do what I want syndrome. I notice that I do what I want has become a meme, and I don't know exactly what a meme is, but it's a very popular saying, you know. Uh, the classic picture is the kitty cat standing on the table, the uh, cup of coffee there, and the cat does what he wants. Works for a meme and it's humorous. Doesn't work for the church. I have an illustration or two to share to help us think about the significance of unity. Uh, have you ever tried to solve a math problem with a splitting headache? Easy? Uh, how about taking a long walk with a sore foot. Not so easy? All right. Or, how about this? How about skiing downhill with a broken knee? True story. I tried this once. Doesn't work. Trust me. The human body does not function well without unity, and neither will the church. So the bottom line is, it is vital that we have unity. Vital. 
Now we get to what I would call the final question. How can the church experience unity? How can we make sure that the church is like these rowers, all pulling at the same time, in the same direction, to the same cadence? First, we need to understand the source. God is the source of unity. Uh, Romans 15.5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, here it comes, give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So, the lesson there, we see that unity is from God through his spirit. Secondly, recognize the truth that all believers in Christ as Savior and Lord are part of his body, the church. Ephesians 5.30 says, For we are members of his body. We are already united in Christ. We don't have a choice of whether or not to be united. Whether we feel like it or not, each one of us is part of Christ's body. And therefore, we're unified with every other believer. Now, I want to point out here, please note that our unity is not in each other. Our unity is in Christ. It's with each other. Important distinction there. So here's the reality. The reality is that we already have unity. But at the same time, we are on a journey to grow in that unity, to make our daily lives and experiences reflect the unity that we already have as Christians. Now let's look at God's word to see what this journey toward unity looked like in the early days of the church. Uh, in his letter to the Corinthian church, the first Corinthian letter, Paul addresses some sources of division in the church, such as improper observance of the Lord's Supper, jealousy, quarreling, arrogance, emphasis on following a human leader. That's that classic passage, I follow, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. Look into a human leader as who you focus on. And there's much more than that. Many more sources that Paul addresses. In other words, a lot of people who wanted things their way. Uh, the Corinthian church was what you might call the poster child of division and disunity. So after addressing these serious problems in the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, verses 12 to 27, which we are going to read, Paul describes the unity and the diversity of Christ's body, the church. And he uses the analogy of the human body to do that. So we're going to read that passage from 1 Corinthians 12, and it'll be up on the screen, verses 12 to 27. Again, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, 
slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. I want to take note here, uh, now that we've read that, I don't know how many times I've read that passage and this preparing for this message, it, it hit me that Paul uses a, what I would consider a brilliant <coughs> analogy to give his message. You know, the Bible has lots of analogies and they're good analogies. You know, the, the seed being spread on different soil, um, shepherds, but some of those are kind of difficult for us in, you know, 2,000 years later to easily relate to. So how brilliant is it that Paul uses the example of the body, which is not any different than it was 2,000 years ago? We all have, you know, it's the same parts we have now, um, and they work the same way. So I think that's brilliant, and uh, we should not be surprised, I suppose, because the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul when he wrote these letters to the churches. But I just thought that was really quite quite amazing. Uh, some verses I want to focus on out of that passage we just read. Uh, verse 18, uh, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. What does that say? It says you and I are not here and I don't just mean on planet Earth, I mean here, we are not here by accident. God did not randomly say, well, I'm going to put five people over here, it doesn't matter who it is, and in this other church I'm going to put these ten. Uh, we are where God wants us to be. Verse 25 is the next one I want to look at. There. Um, as this body... It says that there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. As part of the body, we are not to be divided. It says we care equally 
for every member of the body. And finally, verse 27. Paul's closing argument, if you will. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of us is a part of it. Well, fulfilling our role as part of the body is essential to Christian unity. What this passage tells us is that we are different, different parts, but it's of the same body. I want to share an illustration uh, from my family's fairly recent history um, that talks a little bit about unity. A few years ago, uh, it became necessary to move my parents from Tennessee back to Michigan. That involved a great amount of coordination and communication between mom and dad, between all four of their children, and several other family members. Uh, it required a commitment of time and resources from all of us. Every one of us had a specific role to fulfill. And we needed to put aside our preferences, our schedules, our comfort, our convenience. We needed to put all that aside for the sake of accomplishing a successful transition. One of us was a spokesperson for the family. Uh, what I mean by that is, mom and dad, it's time we had the talk. And that talk actually took over a couple of years, but that's another story. Um, one of us did most of the research for the new home and prepared it for being move-in ready. Uh, many others were involved in packing and moving and unpacking and more packing and moving and unpacking and so on and so forth. I still remember the comment made by one of the family members who was involved in this project. This person was truly amazed and how united we were as a family. What, what they noticed was, you guys didn't, didn't argue or go off on your own way about any of this. You knew what the goal was that you needed to accomplish, and you were all in. In previous similar situations, this family member had had experiences that were not so positive because their family was not in unity. Everybody had a different idea and wanted to go their own way. And you've probably heard or maybe lived through similar stories where unity was not really there. Christian unity comes with Christian maturity and it's always something that we strive to attain. Paul gives us an instruction in Ephesians 4 to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Well, when he says make every effort, that should tell us that it's not easy, it's not a piece of cake to do this. Helping us toward that unity are the gifts of the Spirit. God has given each Christian different gifts. You've heard some of those talked about today as we introduced and commissioned new elders and deacons. Um, and using these gifts, whether it's my gifts, your gifts, to build up the church leads to more and more unity. So in addition to knowing that we're part of the body, we also have gifts 
that are to be used in that body. One purpose of the gifts is that we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Uh, what Paul talks about later in Ephesians 4, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, we are each part of the body, and we have gifts to build up the body. Now, how do we put that equal concern for each other into practice? Good question. Growing in unity and maturity, both of those things, requires that we, you and I, continually submit our wills to Christ, and that we follow the leading of his Holy Spirit. Let's dive a little deeper into what that looks like. Uh, some verses that will help. Philippians 2, verse 3. says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4 says, right after it, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, or but also to the interests of others. And then, again, back in Ephesians 4. A lot of good stuff in Ephesians 4. It's a good chapter to read. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 2 says, We are to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ouch. That's a high standard, or what some might call a tall order for us. Because as humans... We sometimes have a struggle. Actually, every day we have a struggle. Actually, most of us probably have a battle every day to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be loving. It's not easy. Here's the thing. A church that's filled with people who are humble, gentle, patient, and loving cannot help but have peace, unity, and harmony. So we need to strive daily to be more like Jesus, our Lord. <clears throat> unity in Christ means that all believers are in a relationship with Christ, and by extension, every other believer. All believers are united with each other, whether they know it or not, like it or not, or feel like it or not. The challenge, and I underline this, the challenge of Christian unity is to live up to the truth of that reality. Since we're all members of one body, we need to live like it. My individual needs and yours take a back seat to the needs of the body of Christ. My individual gifts and yours are to be used for the good of the body, not for me for you. Now, over the years, I want to share this, um, and it's been many years, uh, I have seen beautiful examples of unity in the Meadowbrook family. Here are some of those examples. This is not an all-inclusive list. Unity by praying for each other. Unity by rejoicing with each other. You know, that's not as easy as it sounds. Because if somebody's had something really good happen in their life and I've had something not so good happen, 
I may have a really hard time rejoicing with them, but I have seen that here. Uh, providing assistance to those in need. Another great mark of unity. Coming alongside those who are grieving a loss. Seems like we're having to do way too much of that, in my opinion, but it is good that we are able and want to come alongside those who are struggling with loss, with broken relationships, with whatever it is. Uh, seeking and receiving forgiveness from each other. Something else I've seen. Something else I've had to do uh, myself. Now the common denominator in each of these examples is that they require sacrifice on our part. Giving of our time, our resources, our finances, humbling ourselves, being vulnerable, praying with and for each other, putting the other person ahead of me. These are all ways that we grow together in unity, becoming more like Christ. I mentioned earlier that we won't reach full Christian unity until we attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we probably are not going to realize fully Christian unity in this world. But, and I say it again, we strive for it. Strive means something you are stretching, reaching, constantly pursuing. The unity that our faith in Christ brings will show the truth of who Jesus is. And it will show how much he loves the people he died for. Friends, our unity as the church is critical. We have been set apart for the good works God has prepared for us. As we strive to be one in Christ, the result that we pray for is that the world will see Jesus and will desire to surrender to him. Now as leaders and overseers, we are here to promote that unity. We are here to ensure that every member is functioning as part of the body in the role that they are gifted for. The leaders at Meadowbrook are using their gifts to help each of you, myself included, use your gifts and ultimately helping to prepare all of us for works of service in the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here today, or maybe you're watching this on a live stream, and you're realizing that being part of a family that is united is something that you need, something that you don't have today. Well, today, I've got good news. Jesus is waiting with welcoming arms. He is inviting all who are lost to place their trust and their hope in him, to surrender completely to his will and his plan, to be one with him now and forever. If you have not given your life to Jesus, today is the right time to make that decision. And I'll tell you, it is the most important decision any of us will ever make. How do I do that? It starts with belief. I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. That he did exactly what he said he would do. That he is the only way to heaven, to a relationship with God. And then confessing, I'm a sinner. 
I can't get out of that sin cycle by myself. I'm lost without him. Repenting, turning from that life of sin, whatever it is that I cannot escape from, giving my life to Christ, saying, take it. Being baptized into Christ, identifying with him, burying that old life, coming up to a new life in Christ. And then, and that's where we often stop, but don't stop there. Because now the job is to live for Christ, not for self. So Jesus today is inviting you to that life that is truly life. Uh, this church, on behalf of this church, uh, I want to invite you to be part of God's family, to be one with us as we worship and serve Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Uh, would you pray with me?